Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. The Hellmouth Con. The Hellmouth Convention is back, and it's hosting a spectacular event in the place of all places, Torrance High School, the shooting location for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Join us June 15th, 2024 for one day only. Proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center and the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship. Visit thehellmouth.org for details. SoonerCon 32. Oklahoma City's longest-running premier pop culture convention returns June 21st through 23rd, 2024. Prepare for three days of cosplay, crafts, tabletop gaming, and legendary guests, all in the friendly town of Norman, Oklahoma. To give back to the community, fundraisers and a live charity auction will be held. Visit SoonerCon.com to reserve your membership. Hello there, and welcome to this live recording of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig. I'm going to be your host. And for people who might not be familiar with the show, Hungry Trilobite is all about fandom and how it makes our lives better, how creativity makes our lives better. And I'm guessing that there's not anybody in this building right now who hasn't felt that in some way, whether they're into gaming or they're into Star Trek or they're into Marvel, DC, Disney they found something there that makes their lives better. And sometimes that actually takes us to a point where we want to make something on our own. My guest today here is James Maxey. He is a sci-fi author. And the book of his I've read, he's a very prolific author. He's written a lot of things, but he's read, I've written Life in a Moment, which is a collection of short stories. Yes. So uh, I've had more short stories than I can count uh, published in... Things like uh, Asimov's uh, magazine, uh, lots of anthologies, uh, and so every five or six years or so, I'm gathering together my stories and putting them out into collections. Life in a Moment is my third uh, short story collection, uh, and uh, it's uh, been selling uh, pretty well since I released it on uh, October 1st. Uh, and what is amazing about this book uh, in this day and age, uh, whenever my first short story collection came out, I did it through a small press, and there was probably about an 18-month period between me deciding we were going to have a book come out and actually having the book come out. Uh, here, uh, I decided uh, early in October that it was time for me to put together a, my next short story collection, and I was selling this book at, an, at a show the first weekend in November. Uh, so the modern ability to conceive of a book and have that book as a physical product in your hand in a timeline of mere weeks is kind of a, an age of miracles and wonder. <laughs> There was a whole conversation around just how many tools the average independent author has at their disposal now compared to even just five years ago. The yeah. game has completely changed. That you, Like you said, you can have a physical product in your hand right away to get to anybody who might want that. It's The ability to change is, can you write the book and can you market it? Yeah, and so here, since it's a short story collection, I'm already being paid for these short stories as I go along. Uh, you know, so, so, you know, I'll earn 500 to 900 bucks for a short story sold to a pro magazine. Uh, but you can only get in 
one or two or maybe three stories a year uh, to these uh, magazines paying the pro rates. Uh, uh, you know, there's only a limited number of slots available and a lot of people competing, competing for those slots. Uh, so one of the nice things today is it used to be I would write a short story, I'd get paid for it, and maybe I would get it reprinted once or twice, and that would pretty much be the death of that story. Uh, but now that I can put a book in, now I can put these collections into print, I can continue earning revenue from them uh, year after year uh, in a way that just wasn't possible 20 years ago. Uh, you know, you, where you had to have a press willing to put out your work. Uh, and there, if you had a book that only sold 50 to 100 copies a year, it was going to be a flop for that press. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas if I sell 100 copies a year of a book in print, it's, you know, quite worth the, uh, quite worth the effort uh, uh, for me. Uh, it's pretty much pure profit at the... Uh, uh, at, after since I've already got the stuff written, so it's uh, kind of a no-brainer to uh, to write the short stories and get them collected. And what you're outlining here is the fact that you know up until that point, you're saying people who write short stories for a living are not necessarily in the same group of people that eat off of gold plates and bathe in Perrier. It's, no, 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 no. The the last person who really uh, lived off of short stories was probably Harlan Ellison. Yeah. Uh, now, if you want to make money as a writer, A, if you're writing for media, you know, if you can become a screenwriter or, or you know, writing for some scripted uh, 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 medium, uh, that's a good path. But uh, if you're wanting to write prose fiction, pretty much novels are kind of a requirement mm -hmm. uh, if you want to have any hope of, of paying your mortgage. <laughs> but what I like about this book in particular is that the, the, the stories have a very Twilight Zone type of feel to them. Yeah. And you're saying it's a, a introduction to darkness, which is they're very morbid in tone. They're they're dark. Uh, they all of them are people confronting their mortality, uh, or people confronting the fact that they had a vision for life that isn't necessarily the life uh, the way that their life has turned out to be. Mm -hmm. And you know. I try to craft each story to where there's a moment of, of hope, where there is uh, the characters, I'm following the characters into the darkness, but I'm trying to show that maybe there is a little bit of light at the end of the, of the tunnel, to, to use a completely original phrase that no one has used before. <laughs> and since this is a collection, I'm assuming you didn't write all the stories with that connecting thread in line there, you just kind of decided after the fact that, oh, hey, this, this works as a set. Yes, yes. So. Uh, uh, this turned out to be a fairly tightly themed book. Uh, I didn't realize, you know, most of these stories I've written months apart, sometimes years apart, uh, but one of the consistent themes in here uh, are stories about people who are losing their memories. Uh, they're, they're hitting an age where they are kind of losing the ability to remember all the details of their life. And once you start forgetting your life, you know, is it still your life? Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's a story in here um, called Clockwork Melting that will be reprinted uh, in uh, the next edition of the year's best uh, hard science fiction uh, about a 
guy who is, you know, trying to recreate his entire life as a clockwork sculpture on Venus. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't want to, to spoil the story, but just this, you know, he's trying to, you know, get a grasp on his own life uh, by walking through this sculpture garden uh, where he can kind of relive, you know, the, the significant moments of his life and his, how he comes to have a relationship with that and what he decides to do with those memories is uh, kind of a key to the story. I'm not in the business of giving out spoilers. You just actually mentioned more than I would have, but what I like about that story is it's, I would describe it as a way of a, a person building a sculpture and they don't even know why anymore, but they right. just feel so compelled to finish it. Right, and it's, you know, it's, a, it's again about the artistic journey uh, that he's making a sculpture and he's forgotten why he was inspired to make the sculpture. Uh, I can be in the middle of a book and every author has hit a moment when they are 15 chapters into a book and they're like, why, why am I writing this book? Why, why did I start it again? Mm -hmm. uh, there's always a point where the inspiration is going to leave you and you're just left with the mechanical slog of, uh, for me, writing one word, writing another word that makes sense, following, a, following with another sentence, uh, and the, the spark is gone, and you just have to rely on craft and trust that whatever was in there is still in there, and it's going to reemerge as you kind of press forward through the darkness. And conversely, I'm sure you've had the experience where you get two-thirds of the way into a project and then you get a, an idea that will let you, let you go. Oh, and yeah. You have to get that out. It's like a sneeze. It's, it's got to come out now. Yeah. Well, I've had, uh, I've tossed aside 50,000 words or more uh, because I will be well into a project and realize, oh, wait, I've, I've done something uh, wrong. So I've got a book in my Bitterwood series, uh, the prequel novel in here is called Dawn of Dragons and I wrote the book where the primary hero was kind of this government secret agent who was uh, you know kind of this rugged guy who was good with guns and good with his fists and he's uh, on this mission you know to uh, uh, help respond to an alien invasion uh, and as, after I wrote the 50,000 words of that book, I was like, yeah, this, this is not who I need to have. I don't need a competent person, uh, a heroic figure at the, at the middle of this. Uh, uh, this is reading too much like I've watched too many action movies. And uh, so I went back and instead the protagonist that I, that I wrote on the second draft, complete opposite. He's kind of a, he's a uh, veterinarian who treats test animals for the military. Uh, and the military is sending monkeys through this uh, warp door that they've created that's taking them uh, uh, instantaneously uh, between uh, uh, two, two laboratories. Uh, but sometimes the monkeys go missing uh, and uh, they, they disappear and they never, and they never come out. Uh, and his guilt about doing this has had him sort of sampling the wares, and so he's now, you know, gotten uh, uh, himself a little drug addiction going on with the uh, horse tranquilizers, and he's kind of this 
wastrel, uh, uh, not happy, uh, no way is he involved, you know, the sort of person who carries a gun or gets into a fist fights. Uh, Guns but, and horse tranquilizers don't mix yeah. very well. Yeah, no, but but it turned out you know he was the he was the hero I needed. He was the protagonist that I I had to have go through the story, uh, and being able to say okay the 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 two months I've spent writing fifty thousand words they weren't wasted but they're delete they're gone and I'm starting fresh with the uh, with the new protagonist. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's the old phrase kill your darlings. I mean just yeah. because you worked hard on something doesn't mean that you can't get rid of it if it serves a story. Right. You got to you got to be willing to if you want to if you want to write the most important key is the delete key. <laughs> and that scary thing is just looking at that blank page and not knowing what the first thing that's going to go on it is. Once you get past that point everything else starts to flow at least a little bit right. maybe slowly but it flows yeah just you, you know it's it's uh i have a writing book and the subtitle is daydream type repeat and the i try to demystify the process so you can get caught up you can get hung up on so many things you've got to do as a writer uh, all the characters you got to keep straight. The plot has to make sense. You got to have the world building and the continuity, uh, and it can get very stressful uh, trying to keep all these balls in the air. Uh, but at the end of the day, all you're doing is daydreaming and typing it out. It's not rocket science. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so you know, a lot of it just comes down to remembering that the worst page that you ever type out is more readable than the greatest page you're carrying around in your head. It's okay if your first draft is a mound of radioactive waste mm -hmm. because when you're around radioactive waste, that's where you get your superpowers. It's funny you should say that because I actually had a bit of a revelation last month when I was in the middle of two big deadlines and I just had to say to myself, you can't edit a blank page. Right. You can't edit a blank page. No. You can't edit a blank page. And yet, I realize, I look in the mirror, and every morning I expect to wake up with the superpower of being able to edit a blank page. <laughs> I never learned that lesson. Well, the it is easier to write once you have your superpowers, and the second draft is where you have superpowers. When you're, you're your first draft, you're kind of typing blind, you're fumbling your way forward. By the time you're on your second draft, you've got telepathy. You know what people are thinking. You have telekinesis. You can pick things up from one chapter and place them in another chapter. You have time travel. If you get to a scene where the hero needs a sword to kill the dragon, mm -hmm. you can go back to the first chapter and have him find that sword. Uh, and so, you know, the main reason to write the first draft is to get the superpowers you need to write the second draft, which is going to be the one that shines. And, I mean, People will, especially at the beginning, say, I just read my first draft and it sucks. Yeah. I'm like, it's allowed to suck. You're oh, allowed yeah. to suck. That's okay. Yeah, totally. That's, yeah. that's what the next draft is for, to make it less sucky. Yeah, I go through about six drafts for yeah. every book I write. So I have my first draft, which is the putting the clay on the wheel. I've got to get it, get it down. I've got to get the raw materials to turn into something. It's the second draft where I really make that clay look like something and then each additional graft is putting on the glaze and, and getting it uh, uh, fired. And so, you know, every, every, every draft gets you a little bit closer to the final product, but you got to start with some ugly clay. 
and you got to find a point at which you can just say, this is going to ship the way it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You got it. Yeah, give yourself a deadline. That is the hardest part of me now being. So I worked with publishers for years. So up until about twenty, from two thousand three to to twenty eleven, all the books I had were traditionally published. Uh, and one of the good advantages of being traditionally published was you did have deadlines. So you had to have you know your story in by a certain point, and those deadlines could be a real. Uh, juice to your creativity you know I've got to get this done uh, so it help you prioritize uh, whereas now you know I don't have the same deadlines I can say oh I want to get this out by such and such date uh, but uh, you know it's it's very tempting to be able to go oh I think I need two or three more months to polish it to the next level and sometimes you've got to you need those two or three more months uh, but eventually you just got to say, all right, I'm putting it up for pre-order. It's coming out on this date and it's going to be good. Uh, I could make it better if I spend another year, but it's going to be plenty good enough. People are going to love it. Perfection is the mirage you keep chasing. Yes. Yeah, there's no point. Uh, and if you if you are chasing perfection, you're just never going, never going to hit it. And the reality is... Uh, Every story you read, every story that you've ever heard of that's famous has some flaw to it. Uh, you know, so I read a lot of classic literature and I'm, I'll constantly encounter great books trapped inside of terrible books. So the classic example of this is uh, Les, Les Miserables, uh, mm -hmm. Victor Hugo, uh, which has this fantastic plot about you know, a prisoner you know, who, uh, you know, convicted for stealing bread for his family and him trying to live a good life while being hounded by the law. Um, it's a wonderful plot, deep characters. And then there's hundreds and hundreds of pages about the Parisian sewers and how they were built and how they were planned and how the city is kind of a, a requires them. And it's this kind of treatise on... Uh, on uh, urban planning, you know, from that era, and it's like, this seems like he's kind of lost the thread here. <laughs> yeah, the, the in older books, and especially, you'll find that there's these tendencies to go off on tangents in ways that modern audiences really wouldn't tolerate, and I'm not, I can never decide if that's good or bad. You know, it's, uh, so something like Moby Dick, the tangents are the novel. You, mm -hmm. you are reading it and you get kind of frustrated by why he keeps going and writing an essay, uh, one essay after another about whales and he seems to have forgotten that there were characters in the book uh, but you know he's documenting a reality you know the you read a lot of fantasy novels now where the authors get really tied up in the world building and you know you're wanting to find out the little cities and who the governor of this province is and what the local lore and legends are, and it's all texture, and it's all very rich uh, and promising, and when you encounter it in a fantasy novel, it can seem you know, really, really important if you handle it well, and uh, uh, for something like Moby Dick, this is his world building. Mm -hmm. It's just he's describing something that really was in the world, uh, and uh, I, I've learned to, to, to love these... Uh, 
these long essays that that sneak into some of these uh, uh, older books. There are a lot of gems in there, I will admit. Yeah. And then there's the other side of the coin that I'll throw out there. Um, okay, no shade on anybody who loves this book, but the book Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Oh my God. Okay, not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like we want to talk about you know, the world building aspects and it's like this dude spent two pages talking about the, the fog. The fog was gray and this book sucks, okay? Yeah. Uh, I, but, well, okay. so Heart of Darkness, you know, I will defend Heart of Darkness as it's actually a fairly short, short book. It you is. Know? So there's a lot of detail in it. It's, it's uh, uh, a lot of words to say, a fairly concise little statement about uh, corruption. Uh, but uh, uh, at least it's something that, you know, if you're an energetic reader, you can read it in, in a weekend, uh, 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 possibly less, versus something like War and Peace or Les, Les Miserables, where you could be locked into this for, for months. <laughs> so how many books total in, in both novels and short stories have you had published? Uh, I have had probably about 25 books okay. published, uh, and then uh, short stories. I've really lost count. It's got to be, got to be in the 60s or 70s, if not not yet 100. So let's say a safe number is 80 total. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Of that 80, is there anything you can think of? And you don't have to name a title. Just say yes. Is there anything that you've said, man, I wish I hadn't shipped that the way it is. I needed another draft. No, but uh, but not everything that I've published is uh, some sparkling gem. You know, I've, I'm constantly surprised by that I will stumble across something that I forgot I've written. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I had a story uh, called Earl Billings and the Angels of the Lord that appeared in an anthology probably around 2002. And uh, a guy at World Fantasy Convention came up to me and was like, oh, I remember your story about the, about the uh, terrorist who meets, uh, the, who meets the angels. And I'm, I'm like, what? You've got to have me confused by some other, you know, I, I don't think I've ever written that story. Uh, and he's like, no, no, it was in, it was in the anthology. There was like uh, a woman in silver on the cover. And I'm like, oh, wait, did I have a, I do remember an anthology like that. And so, so yeah, I had to actually go onto Amazon and look it up and find out why, yes, he didn't, he, indeed, he was remembering a story that I had written that I had completely forgot having written and published. <laughs> so the bottom line is at some point, even when you think, you know, man, I should do another rewrite, when you actually get it out there and it's off in the world and it's finding yeah. its audience, it's fine. Yeah. It's the kid that got off to college okay. Yeah, Every everything you write, you'll have someone out there who's going to encounter it and think, oh, I, this, I really connect with this. Uh, so, you know, there's nothing uh, that you're wasting your time writing. Someone Somewhere out there is the perfect reader for every story. Uh, uh, there will be true love between the reader and the and the work, uh, and it's just your your duty is to have that faith that someone out there is going to going to to love that story, even after you've long forgotten it. <laughs> In an earlier episode, I talked to Elsinore, who uh, was with Archive of Our Own, the the big archive of fan fiction on the internet, which you know we've always 
had a certain commentary on fan fiction that it's just not good writing, which is not true, or that it's not worthy writing, which is not true. And it's like, no, you just sometimes the audience needs to be you. You just need to, to play with the idea and see if right. somebody else wants to hear it too. Yeah, I mean, the your first reader is always yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, write write something you enjoy reading. Uh, uh, you know, if if nothing else, you know, I've I've written uh, my first published novel was called Nobody Gets the Girl. It's a superhero novel. And uh, uh, I wrote it in 45 days. So this was before NaNoWriMo uh, became a thing where people would challenge themselves to write a book in 30 days. I was part of a writer's group and we, uh, uh, me and about six other authors uh, uh, were like, well, we're gonna write, we're gonna start on this date and we're all gonna finish a book in 45 days. And it was me and two other authors who actually completed it. And the I had planned to write uh, a story about Venus being terraformed, uh, which actually is the clockwork melting is the bones that, of that yeah. story. And I thought I could, it's hard science fiction. There's a market for hard science fiction. I think I could sell this story. And I had, was taking notes, really had the story planned out. And then the day before the contest, I had a dream. And in this dream, there was like a woman in a superhero costume, and she was sliding along like a railroad track, and she had spikes shooting out of her ankles. Uh, and I have no idea what these, what these symbols mean, uh, what, it, what it interprets to, but I woke up thinking about a superheroine called Railblade, uh, and uh, I remember also in the dream, there was like an invisible man who was chasing after her, but he couldn't be seen or heard. Uh, and so I'm like, I'm gonna write this weird dream I had down, and I have no idea where it's going uh, or what it, what it does, and no one is publishing superhero fiction, uh, but you know, it's something that, that I feel. And I was a big comic book nerd, and I just felt like I had something to say from all these superhero uh, mythos that I had absorbed over the years. And so uh, I took a chance. I wrote a book that I wanted to read. I thought no one else in the world would, uh, would fall in love with it. But when an editor later asked me to uh, submit a story to him, uh, I sent him that uh, manuscript. Uh, and uh, he read it. He said he hit a scene in it that was so shocking he had to put it down he said well i can't publish this uh uh because there's a very violent act that happens in the middle of the book and then he said the next morning he woke up and he had been thinking about that scene all night and he says well i've got to publish this you know i mean all the you, stories sure. i've read in slush you know this is the first one that has kept me kept me awake at night you know thinking about it so yeah that, i mean you can't deny that if, you, if it's sticking with somebody it's going to have an impact on the audience too yeah yeah and so fortunately at the time, the book had a really kind of stupid ending. <laughs> uh, but he was like, he saw the value of, of the book, and he told me, you gotta, you got to fix this ending. Uh, and uh, he didn't suggest how to fix it, but I, I could see, you know, that the ending felt very tacked on. Uh, and so, uh, so I went back and came up with a, a, a very different uh, ending that was both kind of a penance for the for the characters for the sins they committed and yet also sort of a hopeful way forward 
Uh, so uh, kind of to thread that needle where it's not either rewarding someone for doing something bad or else, uh, you know, just this sad, oh, everybody's been punished ending. <laughs> and the fact that you had the manuscript sitting around for a couple of months, you were probably able to approach it with a fresher perspective. Yeah, yeah. So the yeah, time is the greatest editor, you know. So uh, uh, I, it's good that now I could write a book and have it out uh, quickly. Uh, but one of the things that was kind of an advantage of the old way of publishing, where there would be years between the project and you're and you're actually seeing it in print, was you did have a point where a year later, after you'd finished the manuscript you might go back and think, oh, you know, I've really thought of a better ending to the story, and you could still go back and, and fix it before I hit print. Uh, whereas now, I, if I write a book, I'm not gonna have it, not gonna sit around for a year before I, I put it out. You know, I've got, a, I've got mortgages to pay. <laughs> There's a very, very prolific author with a very, very large Twitter following who shall remain nameless, who uh, has suggested that when you finish your first draft, you should put it in the desk and not look at it for at least six weeks. Do you think that's excessive, or do you think that's fair? No, I, I no, I think six weeks is a pretty pretty decent. Uh, if he had said six months, that would be a little bit harsh. Six years would be foolish, but uh, but yeah, no, six six weeks is a pretty natural time. You got plenty of other stuff to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I I never just finish one draft and jump into to jump into the next draft. I'll normally finish a draft and then let it sit around for a month or two before I return to it, uh, just to have that that fresh eyes. Uh, it's just I don't I no longer have so on some of the first books I had published before I had contracts uh, you know I would write a book and be shopping it around for years and you could submit a uh, you know something to a publisher and they might hold on to it for two years and then you get it back you get the rejection and it's time to submit it again but now you've had two years to think about it and so you have to go to go back and rewrite it one more time, uh, polish it, you know, tweak some seeds, improve, uh, improve it a little bit. Uh, so that is definitely kind of a process that is disappearing in, in today's world. Uh, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I, I'm not going not gonna to judge. Okay. <laughs> I want to ask you something else, but before I do, uh, since we're getting kind of to the middle of the program here, does anybody in the audience have a question for James? Yeah. So you're 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 asking how to how to get to f finishing a novel from once you start it how do you get to the end? All right. So the the primary thing to do is the biggest mistake people that I made when I was first starting was I would write three chapters and then change my mind and go back and start all over again and I would keep writing the first one to six chapters and never be able to get past that because new ideals would constantly come up and I hadn't planned enough. Eventually, you have to hit a stage where you give yourself permission to write it wrong. You'll have a better idea and you have to get up and write the next chapter as if you had incorporated that better idea all along. Uh, so Bitterwood, there's a character in here that started in the book as a 12-year-old boy. And I was writing, uh, It was I just needed this character as kind of as a sidekick to another character. Uh, and I was looking at the timeline and realizing, oh, you know, 12 is too young because I'm talking about events that happened 
Uh, I've already established that it's 20 years, so this this kid, as best, is going to be like 19. Uh, and so uh, the next scene, I was writing it then as a 19-year-old. I didn't go back and fix that. Uh, and then I was like, oh, you know, I've got it as a as a boy, but uh, I don't have I don't have enough female characters uh, in uh, in this section of the book, so I'm going to change it to his daughter instead of his son. Uh, and uh, and so the the character kept evolving, and I just kept you know letting it evolve, and I didn't worry about going back and fixing it. If I had tried to go back and fix it every time. Uh, you got to give yourself permission to write it wrong so that when you hit the end uh, and you go back, you have a better vision. You sort of have to discover the book as you as you move forward. And uh, so the the main motivation that I would say to keep it going is you aren't going to be able to read it until you write it. Uh, uh, there's a famous political quote where... Uh, Nancy Pelosi said something about a bill. We have to pass the bill to find out what's in it. You got to write the book to find out what's in it. Uh, and uh, uh, I hate that my advice basically comes down to just keep typing, but just keep typing. <laughs> Sir? All right. What I'm, okay, sorry. Oh. All right, so my schedule involves playing a lot of uh, Sudoku uh, and uh, online Scrabble uh, for many, many hours uh, of the morning while I'm thinking about I should really be writing something. Uh, and, uh, and then I will have a furious burst of activity uh, from uh, in the afternoon where I will crank out a thousand to four thousand words. Uh, but I'm also, I have a superpower that is also my greatest vulnerability, which is when I have to, I can put my butt in the chair and crank out 15,000 words a day. Uh, and so I've got a couple of books where I've written, I wrote the first draft in under a week. Uh, and once you're aware that you can write an entire first draft in under a week, it kind of is gives your brain this permission to you know, waste away the time, the rest of the time. So for me, in my, in my writing book, uh, there's a picture in here of the Grim Reaper on one of the pages. Uh, and I encourage people to tear that page out and tape it above their desk. Uh, because for me to get to where I'm writing stuff, I sometimes have to remind myself uh, deeply about my own mortality and the fact that the book's not going to be written if I get hit by a bus. Uh, and so I've got to sit down, put my butt in the chair and get it out. So basically, I'm a binge writer where I can go two or three months without doing anything significant, uh, but then we'll have you know, just a week where I'm close myself off from the world, don't look at the internet, and just furiously type, type, type. And uh, the books I get that way, uh, my cryptid book, uh, which I've been I'm down to like four copies of it when I, when I came here, uh, I wrote that in a week, but I knew I've been studying cryptids my whole life. I've been reading all about them. I just sat down and I knew I was going to do 14 cryptids. I just wrote two chapters a day for seven days and I had a book. Um, uh, I have a superhero novel, uh, super villain novel called Burn Baby Burn, where the first book had been with a publisher that went bankrupt. And so my rights were tied up for seven years. 
And so I kept thinking about the story, but there was no point in trying to write a sequel to a book where I didn't have the rights to the first book. Uh, and, uh, and then the rights came back to me and I walked into work one day. Uh, I now write full time, but back then I started a day job and my boss said, hey, you can go home. Uh, there was like smoke in the break room and apparently the whole building is wired wrong and we have to shut down for a week uh, while the whole building is rewired according to the uh, fire, de fire department. Uh, and so I'm driving home and I've got, I've got a week with nothing planned. Can I write that book uh, that I've been thinking about for seven years? And, uh, and so I would get up every morning at 7 a.m. I would keep my butt in the chair until 7 p.m. And I would get out between 9,000 to 12,000 words a day. And at the end of a week, I had the full manuscript. Uh, and to this day, it is the book that is the most like, where the final published draft is the most like the first draft. Because doing it that tightly, doing it that quickly, uh, I never lost the thread of the story. Uh, the characters showed up. I, uh, uh, if you... If you only write, you know, a thousand words here on a Monday, and you come back on a Wednesday to write two thousand words, the character voices can be gone. Uh, so for me, the binge, the binge writing works out uh, pretty well. Uh, this, in probably February or March, I'm going to set aside a week where I'm going to knock out about forty-five thousand words uh, on my next uh, big uh, work of fiction, uh, and uh, uh, and I know that if I can just I've got the core concepts and I just need to build up momentum. Momentum matters. It is, you know, the great secret, you know. Uh, uh, so if you're, the, if you're the sort of, but uh, one last thing, I will say there is no wrong way to do it though. I'm, I'm a binge writer, uh, but uh, oh, I can't think of the author's name. He writes a series for uh, Bain Books where the, uh, he has an intelligent killer drone named Lobo uh, and, uh, uh, but he writes 500 words a day, every day, 500 words is his goal. And he puts out, you know, a couple of books a year doing, doing that process. And that's the only, he says he couldn't even imagine doing it any other way. That is how he has to approach it. It's just that discipline of sitting down for an hour, getting out 500 good words, uh, he doesn't really try to go back and redraft either. He tries to make it perfect as he goes along. Whereas I'm, you know, very happy to throw away, you know, get it onto the page, fix it later. Uh, you know, there is no no wrong way to do it as long as you are doing it. <laughs> there is a microphone okay. back here. If anybody <laughs> did have any more questions, <laughs> you're more than welcome. Yep, you can come. Go ahead. Oh, microphone, wonderful. Hello. Hello. Uh, yeah, I have a question. So I've always wanted to write a book. I have a huge imagination. And I can sit and develop a whole book, like basically in my mind kind right. of thing. Where I get, and I've tried to write before, where I get tangled up is trying to take everything that's like going through my head down one letter at a time, basically. So, you know, I'm writing this like, you know, it's like I need. I got to get this done, you know, because all of this is in my head. I want to get it on paper. So how do I slow that down? All right. So the 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 term here that you're going to need is point of view. So you have this in, infinite landscape of your world and your plot to play with, but everything has to happen here and now. 
for one character in a scene. Uh, you could have a book where you have multiple characters, uh, but I find it very helpful to know whose eyes I am viewing the scene from, uh, what they know, what they don't know. And once you have that filter, you know, it's the lens of the camera that you are seeing the world through, and you can only reveal what they know. Uh, and if they don't know something, they can ask a question, they can get an explanation, and the reader is now receive, receiving that explanation with it. So point of view is 90% of the trick of learning to write a scene. Uh, and uh, uh, going back to the film analogy, uh, whatever you're looking at these shots, if you go and you start kind of breaking down movies, they'll have establishing shots where they're like showing a street in a neighborhood and then they show a specific front door and they kind of you know, are going in and that's kind of uh, this kind of cinematic way that you're getting from a big picture deeper and deeper in. Uh, you got to be able to have that one character be your camera that is uh, uh, taking you deeper into the story and that one character is the only one that you can hear their thoughts. Uh, so uh, that's the that's the main main key is to is to pick which character is your camera and your storyteller, even if it's not first person. I sometimes will write first person where one character is narrating it, but if they're not, one scene at a time for one character at a time. James, I want to thank you for that, okay. and uh, we're getting close to the end of our time here. But we'll make sure people can follow your adventures and find out where to follow their, those adventures on the table there. Okay. So uh, I've got some business cards up here. If anybody uh, needs a business card, I am uh, in the aisle here uh, uh, at the end of the, of the uh, Artist Alley around aisle 600. I'm just beneath the big banner that says Artist Alley. Uh, if you are interested in my writing book, uh, when I came here, I only had four copies left on the table. Uh, the same with my cryptid book. I think I was down to four copies of it. Uh, Life in a Moment, I still have maybe eight or nine copies of, and uh, my top-selling works are actually my dragon novels, so if you uh, like reading about dragons, I've got a grim and gritty post-apocalyptic America conquered by dragons for Bitterwood, uh, and I've got a more sword and sorcery, D&D-inspired, bad girls battling big dragons uh, for my Dragon Apocalypse series. And for the benefit of people listening on the internet, where can they find you on the web? Uh, so uh, you can just type in James Maxey on Amazon, uh, uh, or I do have a website, jamesmaxey.net, that is uh, updated you know, once or twice a year. Uh, uh, usually if I put out a new book, you know, within six months, I'll, I'll make a link to it on, the, on that website. Uh, but uh, you know, Amazon is basically you know, where the... Uh, uh, where the uh, real action takes place. So, I want to thank you all for being here and for listening to us and uh, for taking this journey with us at Expo New Orleans. You can follow me on the web at Aaron Bossig. And if you'd like to subscribe to this podcast you're listening to right now, uh, I've got cards available for you or at my booth over there. I would like to thank James for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. If you recall from earlier in the episode, this show was filmed live at Fan Expo New Orleans 2024, and so I would especially like to thank the great people at Fan Expo for providing the venue that allowed us to put this show together. I think Hungry Trilobite should be about getting the fan experience together, and that especially includes conventions. 
So I would like to do more of these live shows, if at all possible. But in order to do that, I need to be able to reach out to these great conventions. If you know of a show you would like to see me at, please send me that information at bossigpodcast.yahoo.com, especially if it's a local, out-of-the-way convention that I don't know about. And if you'd like to take it a step further, please reach out to that convention itself and ask them to invite me. That's a great way to get us all together. You could keep up with this show by subscribing at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.